Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. I think the, the hardest part to convey to investors is it's not just your prototypical you know, run-of-the-mill real estate company. I think we really do focus on understanding what's best for all of our stakeholders for the long term and being good partners. You know, these days, investors want more than just a strong ROI. They're looking for good companies doing right by all of their stakeholders. And real estate investment trusts are no exception. We've always lived by the golden rule, you know, treat others how you want to be treated, which is pretty rare in real estate. I think a lot of what we're looking at now is how do we go about using our real estate and our platform and merging it with sort of all the technology that's coming to enhance real estate to another level. And that's where I think Kimco can really be a leader and a differentiator. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Real estate investment trusts are REITs. They're investments that can sometimes be misunderstood, particularly among younger investors. They tend to be slow and steady wins the race kind of companies, and their relative lack of volatility can lead some investors to riskier asset classes. But REITs have historically produced long-term capital appreciation and high, consistent dividend income at relatively low risk, and that's huge in today's economic environment. And with more REITs working increasingly hard to shift the long-held public perception that they are just landlords, we're seeing technology and ESG initiatives drive value across diversified portfolios. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Connor Flynn, CEO of Kimco Realty, to the podcast. Kimco is a real estate investment trust listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol KIM. It's America's largest publicly traded owner and operator of open-air, grocery-anchored shopping centers and mixed-use assets with over 540 properties and more than 93 million square feet of gross leasable space. That's a lot. Kimco is dedicated going beyond just delivering incredible value to their stakeholders. They are flipping the script on some historical stereotypes facing large real estate investment companies through their focus on supporting the communities, their properties anchor, and being trusted partners to their tenants. I spoke with Connor today about their strategy. We also talked about the fact that they have the highest credit rating and strongest balance sheet they've had in their history, and certainly what actions Kimco took to support their tenants during COVID-19. Let's enter the arena with Connor Flynn. I'm the son of immigrants from Ireland and at the very early age sort of had the real estate bug. I think it's something that 
was always of interest to me. I got my start at Kimco Realty. I started on the acquisition side and then moved into the leasing side and tried to really learn the nuts and bolts of the lifeblood of the business and how to really go about leasing to different retailers. Retail is a wonderful experience base because it is very different from any other real estate sector because you have to be, in a lot of ways, a specialist and a generalist all at once. You have to be able to deal with the sophisticated retailers like a Walmart or a Target or a Whole Foods. And then you also have to deal with the, the mom and pop retailer that is putting their life savings into their hair salon or nail salon, you name it. So it's really a fascinating experience. You sit at the forefront of the consumer and you also sit at the forefront of like business creation. And it really um, helped me, I guess, on my journey anyways, to be in the trenches, looking at people in the eye, walking them through space that was in many cases dilapidated and hard to envision what it was going to look like at the end of the movie. But that physical before and after is something that really, really resonated with me. It's something that I took great pride in to see something come from you know, start to finish. And so after my leasing experience uh, with Kimco on the West Coast, I decided that's where I wanted to spend more time. So I'd, I went back to get my master's in real estate development from Columbia in New York City. And that gave me a bit more of a skill set to look at ways to unlock value in different ways, not just from the leasing side, but from the repositioning and adding density and looking at the highest and best use of real estate, regardless of being a retail landlord, which would helped formulate our strategy, creating a mixed use type of environment with retail being these core centerpiece, that is the amenity that drives the flywheel that creates a lot of success for the other uses that, that complement that. And so I started off on the leasing side, went back and then started on more operations running what was the West Coast at the time and then got promoted to COO and then became president and chief investment officer and then ultimately CEO, putting it all together and laying out a strategy and what we called our 2020 vision back at the end of 2015, did not have the clarity to be able to foresee the roller coaster ride that we'd be on in retail, whether the new coined word of retail apocalypse was something that I'd be asked about constantly, pandemic-induced you know, vacancy, the new definition of essential retail versus non-essential retail, retail as determined by local municipalities. So you name it, in a very short period of time, we've been thrown a lot, and um, I'm very proud of our team to be able to outperform in a time where there was a lot of stress and a lot of dislocation. What has surprised you about being the CEO of a public company, you know, whether in normal years or pandemic, like what skill set did you have to dial up during the pandemic? What surprised you? So I think being a leader of any organization, it, it really is, is very similar to a lot of my sports experiences of being like a captain on a team. And I think that experience base really helps in, in bringing people together, understanding and, and listening a lot. That's the ultimate success is being able to bring everything together, hear every, everybody's opinions, and then quickly make decisions to, to push forward and get everybody to buy into those decisions. And regardless of if it's good times or bad times, your priority and your mission is to make sure that you're very, very even keeled. And so that you try not to be in a state of panic or a state of euphoria. It's interesting being public because you get a scorecard every minute of every day with your share price. And you want to continue to think longer term, but unfortunately, a lot of our, our investors are very short term natured and are looking for quick hits, 
rather than long-term value creation. And if you've ever done anything in real estate, even if it's a kitchen remodel or a bathroom remodel, it takes forever, right? So the long-term view is something we try and preach regularly, but it's something that sometimes falls on deaf ears. But we do believe that that's really the only way to invest for really the the good of all stakeholders is to continue to think long-term and put yourself in a position to be an opportunist when dislocations occur. Because we're in the ultimate cyclical business, right? You look back 10, 20, 50 years, the best deals are made in those times of dislocation. And if you have liquidity, if you have a team in place and you have the the wherewithal to sort of make sure you take advantage of those times, you can be very successful over the long term. You guys have a great track record over a long period of time. Certain areas of retail have struggled over the last 25 years, but you guys have been able to do it. How's the company reinvented itself? Yeah, it's amazing that a pandemic, the silver lining is is like retail all of a sudden became more valuable than ever, right? So all of a sudden you became reliant upon that grocery store that's closest to your house to service your needs when everyone was in lockdown. That's where really we wanted to focus our time and effort. Kimco had bought five public companies in the past and had a pretty diverse set of properties across the country. And it was geographically diverse. We used to say you could throw a dart at the map and even if it hit Canada or Mexico, you're probably going to hit a a, a Kimco property. We didn't really have efficiencies of scale. And that's one of the big lessons that I learned in the field. Managing a diverse set of properties and a diverse workforce, it, it becomes extremely challenging if you have scale, but you don't have efficiencies of scale because then it almost works against you. And so when we looked at our our retail holdings, we wanted to take a step back and say, what's the best way to utilize our time to make sure that that time enhances our growth profile? And we had a, a, a massive portfolio that we felt like if we could knock the barnacles off of it, that the ship could sail extremely fast. And that's what we had to do. And so we went through each market. We understood sort of the, the supply and demand and the barriers to entry in each market. We had a lot of lessons learned through different cycles, put together really the foundation of what we wanted to be five plus years. And so ultimately it was the right thing for the long term of the company and the long term of the, sh- the shareholders. Yeah, you can only do so many things well in one year and it takes a while to turn the battleship around, but you guys have obviously done it. You talk a lot about necessity-based retail in the last mile. Can you talk about what that means and then how that plays into kind of omni-channel retail, which is really, it's not the future, it's happening now. Right. How does that, what is that? So one way to think about it is it used to be where it was physical versus digital, right? Physical versus e-commerce, where Amazon was the end-all be-all and everyone else was going to lose and it was going to be Amazon's world. What happened and the pandemic accelerated it, all of the traditional retailers developed their own e-commerce platforms. And so they had to compete in that new sphere and they did so by developing their own e-commerce platforms. And what's happened and what we talk about last mile retail and the integration of physical and e-commerce is the store has actually been plugged into the e-commerce business. And so instead of one being against the other, a lot of data has come out showing that the actual combination, the one plus one is equal to more than two. And so when a retailer that has an e-commerce platform opens a physical store in a trade area, the sales of the e-commerce sales pop 
sometimes by 80 to 90%. And when the physical store closes in that trade area, the e-commerce sales fall off a cliff 80 to 90%. So there's this tethering effect. And so what's happened is the store has become a little bit like a micro distribution and fulfillment center where they have the ability to fulfill your order, whether you started online or not, and then give the customer the option on how you want to get that good. So through the pandemic, a lot of people were using curbside pickup. A lot of people use ship from store to home. A lot of people enjoy the store experience and go through and pick it themselves. A lot of people go into the store and actually just pick up their goods that they've ordered online as well. And so all of a sudden that cost, right? Cause it's all about margin, right? So it's that cost of shipping from a distribution center. You don't have to pay for the gas. You don't have to pay the, the trucker. You don't have to pay the picker that loads the, the goods. And you don't have to put that together from that, that far off location. The margin is enhanced significantly when you're able to use that last mile store, because obviously, especially if you get the customer to come in and pick it up themselves, that's the ultimate. Cause then they've used their time, their gas, their car, and so that's where it's all headed. Target, I think, has been very eloquent in, in, in laying out the blueprint of the future. And they have been for a while now, where 95% of their online orders are fulfilled by their store base. The COVID-19 pandemic saw a huge shift in day-to-day operations and a lot of uncertainty for retail businesses. However, some real estate partners like Kimco managed to find really effective ways to support their tenants. I asked Connor about Kimco's pandemic response and how that really translated into superior rent collection, NOI, and occupancy numbers that look terrific. It started out, I would say, relatively simple. We wanted to try and just increase communication. And so when we as a company flipped to remote work, we started doing more regular Zoom calls with all of the department heads and had sort of the priorities listed on on how we were going to go about creating lines of communication with all of our tenants. Now we have 10,000 tenants, so it's, it's obviously very tough to lay out a plan to try and hit all of those. So, but what we did was we figured this was the time to really form a partnership. And it's always hard when you're collecting rent from a partner, especially if they're forced to close and they're not able to operate. And so we tried to take a balanced approach to understand what they were going through and at the same time help them navigate and use some of the tools that the government had launched with PPP funding to help them access capital if they needed to. The large, sophisticated companies, like I mentioned before, the Targets, the Walmarts, the Costcos, they had the rainy day fund to weather the storm. And so our communication with them was very simple. It was, hey, this is a big dislocation. We're all in the same boat. We can defer that rent and collect it when things start to normalize. On the small shop side, that's where we felt like we really had to step up. And typically, if you're a, a single unit operator, usually your life savings is in that business and you don't have a rainy day fund. And those are the ones that we really felt we had to go above and beyond to try and help. And so what we did was we formulated a like a task force to work with those individuals and put together a template of what they needed to do in order to access government funding, 
because the paperwork was sort of a bear, to be honest. And so what we did was on our dime, we put together a, a list of advisors, including attorneys and others to help people f- fill out those forms and get into the queue of PPP funding. And we were able to help hundreds of retailers do that and, and generate millions of dollars of PPP funding for them, which at the end of the movie, I think helped quite a few. Obviously, it was a win-win for you guys to handle it that way, but certainly I would imagine the mom-and-pop tenants will not forget that, and that's got to be pretty gratifying. Another thing in the pandemic, you made an acquisition that closed in August of 21. What does WRI do for Kimco, and how is that going to contribute to growth over the next several years? So WRI is Wine Garden Realty. They're based in Houston, Texas. It's a $6 billion REIT that owns primarily grocery anchored centers and mixed use assets across the Sun Belt, typically concentrated in very, very similar markets to what Kimco owns across the Sun Belt. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes disruption creates real opportunity. This is a company that we were admiring for many years and you know, looking at as a great fit for Kimco because in a lot of ways, they had gone through that same evolution that we had where they had to dispose of lower quality, lower growth assets and reinvest and, and repurpose a lot of their best real estate. And we felt like we could enhance what they have and they could potentially enhance you know, what we have. And so the deal came together at a time where looking back, the sentiment was changing in terms of retail is not going to die. And all of a sudden retail is actually doing quite well and starting to thrive. And Grocery anchored retail is the bright shining star that is where you want to be in retail. And when we put that deal together, it was deleveraging and creative for Kimco. And all of a sudden, you could see capital start to flow towards our product type in ways that we hadn't seen in decades. And so cap rate compression, which is really just sort of the valuation of the, of the underlying real estate from the NOI side, all of a sudden compressed by over 100 basis points in a few months. And so the timing of that deal worked really, really well because we were able to sort of get the momentum of all the leasing that was going on and the cash flow growth that was coming. And then all of a sudden the investor base and the market really started to recognize that. And so our data analytics sort of helped us get conviction to say, now's the time, let's really try and make the deal. And so growth is going to be you know, sort of Kimco's middle name for a little bit as we unlock a lot of this low-hanging fruit from the Sunbelt portfolio of Wine Garden, where we can lease up vacancy, we can redevelop and add mixed use and feel like the growth of the population surrounding those areas is pretty significant as you've seen multiple times the population shifts that have gone on through the pandemic. Another smart transaction, what gave you the conviction to be able to invest in Albertsons when they were kind of at a low point and how is that going to benefit shareholders over the coming years? Kimco's got a long history of creating value, and many times it's on the property side, but many times it's also investing in retailers that are real estate rich. So a lot of retailers do own their own real estate, and a lot of them don't get credit for that real estate, or it's not valued properly in the way that you know the street or analysts value retailers today. And so we've done double digit type of opportunities with retailers where we help them in a way unlock the value of that real estate, whether it's either selling it or buying it from them or just helping them get value for it through different ways. And that was what 
drove us to the Albertsons investment. And we're in a, in a great consortium of, of folks. And we all saw the value proposition because the real estate in essence was worth so much that we felt like even if the operations didn't turn it around, that we had a, a minimum cover play of the real estate because Albertsons was one that owned over half of their portfolio. And then the consortium brought in a wonderful operator to turn things around. And grocery stores, you know, were at a point where there was a lot of question marks. And so there was this debate of where is the traditional grocer going to fit in? It's always fascinating to me when you ask people, you know, where they shop and what do they get at their grocery stores? Because the tradition has changed where it's no longer like a one-stop shop. People go to multiple grocery stores now for different items. And specialty items are sort of what makes a grocer retain that loyal shopper. And Albertsons came very quickly up with the game plan, getting that experience right. And that was, in essence, the trajectory of turning things around, which led to acquisitions of other chains, which led to acquisitions of Safeway, which was the very large West Coast chain that we took private. And then all of a sudden, as the, the East Coast and the West Coast combined, operations continued to improve, which gave them the opportunity in the midst of the pandemic to go public. And so now it's a publicly traded company, very large grocery store chain that's doing exceptionally well. They just actually announced earnings today, which beat expectations. I think the stock has almost doubled since they went public. Our investment, which is at a cost basis of around $100 million, is approximately worth about $1.4 billion today. So we have, um, <laughs> we have a, a, a nice return on our hands and a, a big tax uh, question to solve. It's a good problem to have. I was going to say high class problem. That's just a great example of seeing around the corner, skating to where the puck is, whatever you want to call it. Stepping back, talk about the balance sheet and liquidity for you guys should opportunities arise. And are you satisfied with the capitalization of the company right now? Yeah. So that's really the only way to, in, in real estate anyways, to be successful and to have longevity because we've seen it so many times where people get over levered and people get in trouble and get over their skis with development or the crash of a market and they don't have access to capital. So it's been a calling card of ours for a long time. Um, we set out to try and actually get to a higher credit rating. So we're triple B plus BAA one right now, which is investment grade credit. And we wanted to try and get to that A minus A3 level, which is a pretty unique and elite level in the REIT world, especially because of how capital intensive our business is. We haven't gotten upgraded yet, primarily because we're in the retail sector. So I think there's some, some hesitancy there just in general from the rating agencies, but we are at an all time low in terms of leverage for the company's history. So our net debt to EBITDA is at an all time low, which is, which is great. Yet we're still thinking that there's going to be improvement in that because the lockout period on Albertsons, you know, expires at the end of June. So that billion four I was just telling you about becomes liquid and we were able to, you know, dispose of, of those shares and get, retain the capital and either pay down debt or invest it creatively. So we have some more tools in our tool belt to be able to continue to improve the balance sheet. Our liquidity position is has never been better. You know, we have over 350 million of cash on the balance sheet. We have our $2 billion line of credit with nothing outstanding on it. We have the billion four of Albertson's shares. So we're in a position that is relatively unique for a real estate owner operator that's typically very capital intensive where you try and minimize the amount of cash on your balance sheet, where we're in a position where if anything were to happen, 
um, we can weather anything right now. There's like so much money slashing around on the sidelines right now. I have to imagine that acquisitions could be more competitive with a lot of well-capitalized people. How do you think about capital allocation and ways you might be able to create value if you're not willing to overpay for something? You know, how do you approach kind of all those levers to create value for shareholders? We start out with the like the organic, you know, capital allocation. So that's really where the, the best returns are. So making sure you understand how much capital you need for your leasing initiatives, because really that's that's the best investment you can make because that is, you know, the, the most accretive use of your capital. And so we we have that sort of allocated of around $100 million, $150 million a year of, of, of investment on the, the leasing side. And then you look at your redevelopment opportunities, the smaller redevelopments, which is, you know, typically if you think about a grocery anchored center, you have like a bank pad or a Chick-fil-A or a Starbucks or something in the, in the parking lot, what we call pads up in front. If you can activate and develop those pads, that's a great use of your capital. You're typically returning double digits on your investment. And so that's where we, try, again, try and have about $100 plus million a year or so of those projects going across the country. Next up on the, on the stack would probably be your acquisition side. That's where, again, Blackstone, Brookfield, Starwood, all the public peers, all the private folks that are well capitalized are out looking for product right now in very similar markets where we are. So it's gotten very aggressive in a very short period of time. As I mentioned before, cap rates have compressed significantly. So what you try and do is be very selective and pick the ones that you really have conviction on where you can create value in the short term. I think when you have a 10-year cash flow analysis, I really want to focus on the first three years and make sure there's real value creation to occur. Because after three years, it's anybody's guess on really what's going to happen. But if you have the ability to unlock something in the first three years, that can really help your conviction and help you say, hey, we can make a push for this one. And then longer term, if it has redevelopment opportunities, that's what we like as well, where it's surrounded by density. So you sort of have the hole in the donut where everything has gone vertical around you. And so you know long term you're going to add density to that asset. And we have an entitlement team that really focuses on that, which is a big differentiator for us. We've up to, in the last five years, we've gotten 5,000 apartment units entitled. And our goal for the next five years is to get it up to 12,000. So we, we have a dual process of understanding sort of the grocery anchored side of it, as well as understanding the highest and best use of the, the asset. And then after that, typically we have a lot of different joint venture partners. So sometimes they need to, to have different capital needs elsewhere. So sometimes those acquisitions can pop up. And those are typically great because you know the asset, you don't have to do the underwriting. You've got you know the people already in place. And that's where scale can really help us is we, we don't really have to add people. We have these clusters of real estate that we can operate extremely efficiently around the top 20 major metro markets. And that's where we try and focus our expertise. Yeah. One thing that's top of mind these days, you can't watch uh, the news without a report on inflation. How does that impact rents and cash flow and stuff like that? How are you maneuvering around that? We're watching the customer closely and we've been watching our, our data very closely on traffic and patterns. And the good news for us is, again, we're essential. So like everybody still has to eat. And so our grocery anchors continue to, to do well, even with this inflationary environment that's rippling through multiple different sectors. What we're able to do is pass on a lot of the inflationary costs that we're seeing on the construction, you know, the labor issues that are that are popping up. So the good news for us is we have the product 
and there's been virtually no new supply for a decade plus. And so when you have the right product and when you have the ability to push on those additional costs onto your retailers who can pay up for those locations because they're able to push on some of their costs to their customer, then all of a sudden the cash flow growth is able to pick up um, significantly. Yep. Maybe talk about like the ESG initiatives. When people think about ESG, maybe they don't think about real estate investment trusts right away, but like I know you guys are committed to that and have been recognized for it as a company. What are you guys doing in that area? What are you most proud of? So ESG is a huge, huge movement. I mean, it is something that, you know, 10 plus years ago, we used to have an ESG page on the back of our investor book. And it was there because we had institutional investors from Europe that were asking questions about it way before anybody in the U.S. was ever focused on it. And I give them a lot of credit because they're the reason why we're so far ahead in all of our ESG initiatives. E for us is really focusing on science-based targets and trying to figure out how you go about making your asset more sustainable and more environmentally friendly for the long term. And so we set out some very aggressive goals to reduce emissions um, over the next five years by 30%. We actually surpassed our goal for emissions reductions in 2022. On the social side, you know, we've been very focused on diversity trying to retain and attract talent from multiple different sources. I think real estate has not been very diverse for a very long time. Our board is 50% diverse now. We have a 60% goal of management to be diverse in the next five years and continuing to partner and bring in interns from both geographically and racially diverse areas. And so it's something that I think REITs can lead in because we have the ability to attract talent and source those opportunities. And then on the governance side, being public, you sort of are set to a higher standard and you have the ability to set, I think, the, the course for others to follow. And so we've always been very, very focused on being best in class there. And I think somebody said it best or ESG just stands for doing what's right. Yeah. You have to do what's right. And if you're not focused on it, if you're not a leader, you're probably not going to be able to retain talent. You're probably not going to be able to attract talent. Your results are going to be impacted by that. It's not solely about doing what's right. It's also about attracting capital. The investor story and the ESG stories are merging at a rapid pace. My last question, Connor, is investors who may not fully get the value of the business, like what do you think they miss? I think the, the hardest part to convey to investors is it's not just your prototypical you know, run-of-the-mill real estate company. I think we really do focus on understanding what's best for all of our stakeholders for the long term and being good partners. We've always lived by the golden rule, you know, treat others how you want to be treated, which is pretty rare in real estate. I feel like we're stewards of a lot of different communities. We own their downtown. And I think a lot of what we're looking at now is how do we go about using our real estate and our platform and merging it with sort of all the technology that's coming to enhance real estate to another level. Because if you think about it, real estate is probably the last sector that really hasn't taken the same leap that others have with like the digitization and, and sort of the optimization of, of enhancing through the mobile world and the, the connected world we live in. And that's where I think Kimco can really be a leader and a differentiator because we have the platform, we have the ability, but we also just want to learn and want to listen and how to figure out how do we do it as technology continues to evolve. And I think we're going to be at a point where 
we're not sort of stuck in our old ways. So that's what gets me excited and what I try and get across to investors that we're just sort of getting started at Kimco. After more than 60 years in business, mature companies like Kimco know if they're gonna be around for another 60 years, flexibility is a must. They've not only proven that they can adapt, but they've set benchmarks for the rest of the industry, keeping stakeholder trust a priority through it all. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be-public companies. Thanks for listening. Another big thank you to Connor for a rich and insightful conversation today. Kimco is a great company with a really diverse asset base, a great supply-demand dynamic, excellent cash flow, a balance sheet in the best shape it's been, a 3% yield, and a really determined, creative, and committed management team. It's awesome to see a company in an industry hit so hard by the pandemic, managing it so expertly and steering through things that many other companies couldn't. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.